Well, welcome again to PCC and Happy New Year to you. Uh, my name is Lucas Dorado. If we haven't met, I'm the RUF campus minister over at UConn. Um, this is year 11 for me, uh, partnering with this church, serving at UConn, and uh, I'd always like to take the opportunity to just say thank you to you all, to this church, uh, for the wonderful partnership we have in ministry, for all the ways that uh, you support our ministry financially, otherwise through the way you love our fa my family and I uh, love the students that come. Uh, really grateful to be in partnership with this church and really grateful to have the opportunity to come preach here uh, somewhat often and uh, you know, a couple weeks ago when Will was asking me to preach, and I realized that I'd be preaching on the first Sunday of the new year, and I can pretty much preach on whatever I want, because I'm not the pastor here, so I was kind of like, well, what will I do, you know, and uh, I decided that uh, we ought to start at the end. Uh, why not start a new year uh, by starting at the end, the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible uh, to kind of set our focus for the year. And, you know, we're going to look at this passage, which is it. And like, this is the hope. Uh, we believe as a church, as God's people, that there will come a day when Revelation chapter 21 comes to pass, when the dead will rise, uh, when those that belong to Jesus will rise to eternal life, uh, that sin and sadness and death and pain will go away forever. And that is just like the hope. If you don't have that, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, if you have hope in only this life, then you are of all men most to be pitied. And you see what he's saying there. He's saying that uh, either you have this hope of heaven coming to earth, of God finally making everything right, or there is no hope. Uh, so this is the hope. And let's be honest, you know, Things are not great in a lot of the world, right? You can look around, and it's not that hard to see the need for things to get better, whether it's the pandemic and its many variants or just the division that that causes in our world. Or if you look around at things like poverty, at things like crime, at things like the racial tension uh, that is mounting in our country and in other places. If you think about the natural disasters which seem to be in the news weekly taking human life. Uh, if you think about the situation of many people around the world uh, suffering under cruel rulers, suffering all kinds of bad things. Uh, if you think about the church, the, the difficulty of being the church today, the divisions and the conflicts. If you think about looking in the news and how there's just kind of mass shooting after mass shooting, so much so that we don't even notice it in the news. Uh, so there's a need for hope, right? Uh, hope for the future in our world does not seem very high. Uh, if you look at the church in the world, the church seems to be losing. Uh, things were pretty bad when John wrote the book of Revelation 2. Uh, at that time, Domitian was emperor of Rome, and Domitian was known for crucifying Christians by the thousands. He was known for lighting them on fire. He was known for throwing them into the gladiator ring to be mauled and eaten by lions while crowds cheered. And so, you know, you think about the book of Revelation coming 
against that backdrop. And it's amazing how God meets his people where they are. You know, because what's needed when everything in the world is going wrong is a word from the future. (laughs) If only there could be a word about our future being secure. If only someone could come from there and reassure us here that there's going to be a good outcome for God's people. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's this apocalyptic vision about what's really going on behind the scenes and what is to come. And so uh, with that in mind, I want us to read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. So let's look at it together. Uh, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come now to this word, we do pray that it would be true hope to us, true life. Uh, We come from all different places this morning. Many of us come from places of sorrow, mourning, weeping, and sadness, suffering, and hurt. Uh, No matter where we come from this morning, we pray that this text, your word, would be a balm to our souls, that it would heal our hearts, that it would make us New this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to consider a hypothetical situation this morning in which there's two, two men that are in need of work. Uh, really desperate for work, and so uh, they're approached by a factory owner individually, and the factory owner says, listen, I own this factory. I need someone to work in my factory. Uh, it's hard work. It's really tedious. You're going to stand in an assembly line and just put pieces together with your hands. It's going to be tedious. It's going to be arduous. It's going to be really hard. I need you to do it 40 hours a week, just putting things together. There's no other way it can be done. And I can't pay you until the end of the year. But if you put in your time, if you do the work well, at the end of the year, I will pay you $10,000. That's the first guy. To the second guy, he says, same spiel. I need the work. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really tedious. But at the end of the year, I will pay you $10 million. And then they both need the work, so he sets them to work. So these are two guys. They're doing the exact same work in the exact same place. And what would the experience be like? You know, the first one would probably be miserable, right? 
This is the worst job I've ever done. I can't believe this is all I could find. I'm doing this 40 hours a week just doing this. While the other one would likely, the $10 million man, would be saying, you know, this isn't really that bad. (laughs) I can do this. Like, you know, all we have to do is stand here and put things together. It's not so bad at all. I can think about other things. And they're doing the same exact work, but the only difference is the hope that they have. The only difference is what they're, in the end, looking forward to while they work. It's crucial for living the Christian life, for living life in this world that we know where we're headed, uh, that, we, that we know what the end of our story will be. So where are we headed? We're headed to where this passage is talking about. We're heading to the place where the Lord himself says, I am making all things new. And so I want to look at what's new. I want to look at this morning a new home and a new love. So first of all, I want to look at a new home for God's people. And I think it's worth just explaining, because I I grew up in the church, and I was confused about this, and I've noticed that many college students that grow up in the church are a little confused about, like, what exactly are we looking forward to in the end? And a lot of times we think about, well, that's heaven. We're looking forward to life in heaven, which is not actually right. Uh, What we're looking forward to is a new heavens and a new earth here, a renewed earth here, a heaven coming down from earth. And so when you die as a believer, uh, you do go to heaven. Uh, Heaven is, we don't know much about heaven except that we'll be with Jesus, that our souls will be made perfect in holiness, and they will go to be with Jesus. But there will come a day where this passage is talking about where heaven will come down, where the souls of believers will be Uh, united with their bodies and raised up incorruptible without sin to live life in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Here, the earth that God originally created will be made new, which means that we probably won't float in the new heavens. God made us with legs, so I would imagine we will continue to use our legs. I don't know if you're into playing the harp. I'm not that into it. Uh, I guess you can play it if you want in the new heavens and new earth, but uh, the point is we won't, you know, I was always a little, like, not that uh, excited about the image of floating around on a cloud playing the harp growing up in church, and that is not at all the vision of what we're looking forward to. Uh, We're looking forward to a renewed earth where everything is the way it's supposed to be which means that we'll use our legs and they'll work well. Our bodies will work well. So we'll run, we'll dance, we'll swim, we'll do whatever you know, we we're made to do with our bodies. We'll eat and the food's going to be good. Uh, it's all going to be good because everything bad is going away. I used to be a little confused by this notion of the sea being no more. And at the end of verse 1 there, anybody ever wondered about that? Because I like the ocean. I like the beach. I want it to stay. And, uh, you know, what that's talking about is, you know, the revelation takes a lot of imagery from the prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel. And for instance, in Daniel, four hostile beasts come out of the sea. Uh, You know, they're representing the pagan powers of the world. And in Revelation chapter 13, the beast also emerges from the sea. So the sea, for God's people, is the place of chaos. It's the place where the enemies arise from. And so when it says the sea will be no more, what it's saying, it's portraying dramatically the eradication of any threat. 
It's portraying that the, all of the enemy forces will be no more. The ones that threaten God's people, the ones who threaten the peace and purity of God's world. In verse 4, it says that there will be no death, mourning, crying, or pain anymore. Again, it's God meeting his people exactly where they are. Because Revelation is written against a backdrop of a lot of crying and pain. And we live in a world of a lot of crying and pain too. You know, if we were to just take a poll in this room, uh, you know, if we were just to hear the stories of the last year, uh, we would probably all weep together, wouldn't we? The stories that we've experienced ourselves or heard from others. Uh, what this is saying is that that's all going away. There's going to be no death anymore. You know, death, the, the death that we experience in this life, it's just a shadow. It's going away. There will be no viruses and their variants anymore. There will be no depression. There will be no anxiety. There will be no hunger. There will be no violence. There will be no division. God's people will be one. And what this passage is saying is that's where life in this world is heading. And if you're captured by that vision, like the factory workers, it will change the way you live today. Uh, this world is going to be renewed, and it's going to be our home forever, and so we might as well start living like it now. I want to give a few implications for the new home. I think the first, most obvious implication is just hope. Living with hope when things are really bad. Uh, in the Bible, hope is not cheap. Uh, often in our world, hope is kind of cheap and empty. But in the Bible, uh, the hope is not cheap because it's not denying the sorrow. Like it's not saying, oh, you know, those people that are being crucified, it's not that bad. No, it's saying it's really bad. This is why we need hope. Which is why we need something so secure uh, as God's promised city coming down. You know, and if we lean into the sorrow now, it actually makes the hope, it actually makes our life more fit for the coming kingdom. It makes our hope stronger. Um, I love what Tim Keller shares in his book on suffering at the end. He talks about uh, African-American scholar Howard Thurman in this lecture he gave at Harvard in 1947 about Negro spirituals. And uh, Negro spirituals have often been criticized in academia uh, because, uh, you know, they say, well, it just gets, it's false hope. You know, it just made the African-American slaves more docile. It just made them, you know, more content with their suffering. And listen to what uh, Howard Thurman, this scholar, says. You know, because it's like, oh, it's all these spiritual about thrones and crowns and robes, and that doesn't work. That's not real. Uh, it, it can't work. And listen to what he says. He says, the facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and affirm a terrible right to live. Now, that's hope, right? <laughs> Revelation 21 is inviting us to look everything evil that we see squarely in the face and rejoice that it's on its way out. And to think about the resurrection and glory often. To think about crowns and robes and thrones often. Do you? 
That's the hope. But I want to think also about our work of witness in this world, our work of evangelism. Uh, can your neighbors, can your co-workers tell that you're heading toward a glorious future? Have you told them about it? Because it doesn't make sense not, you know, how could you be heading to a future this good and not tell everyone you see? But the reality is it's hard, right? There's opposition. It's not so simple as you just tell everyone you see because there's all these barriers and difficulties in it. Um, I'm reading a book right now by a Dutch scholar and pastor named Stefan Paas. He's in Amsterdam, which is perhaps the most secular place you can be in the Western world today, doing ministry and teaching and you know, he's working through these questions in his book, like, can evangelism even work today? And, you know, like, how is it going to work? And he makes a great point about how we get caught up as a church and as God's people and, like, you know, can this succeed? Can it work? And he invites people to take a step back and just say, well, is it good? You know, just like a work of art. You know, like, art doesn't serve any purpose, really, except to just be good, to be beautiful, to be praiseworthy. And so he invites us to take a, you know, a way, make a way of evangelism and witnessing where we do these things, not because, you know, it's God's work. He'll, he'll make it work if he wants to, but because it's good, because it's a signpost of the new heavens and the new earth. Our lives can be signposts to the new heavens and new earth. They can just point people. They can just put on display the beauty, and God can do whatever he wants with that. You know, not to mention that everything good we do, all the beauty and goodness that we create here is going to stay. Only the bad stuff is going away, but the good stuff we do now lives on. A final, another implication is our own relationships with our brothers and sisters. I think this is important uh, because, you know, church is hard. There's a lot of relationships within the church, and maybe you have relationships with other believers that are strained, that are hard, that are difficult. And you think, I really don't get that person, or we, there's years worth of conflict that we haven't worked through, or it's just hard. You know, these people are so different from me. And what this passage is inviting us to do is to say, you know, one day that person, whoever it is, I'm going to be closer with that person than anyone I know now. So maybe we could try to be close now. Maybe we could try to live into our future together as God's people now. Uh, so we can live as signposts of our future, of the new heavens and new earth now. But it's hard, right? Because we can't see it. How can we endure? How can we, we remain faithful? How can we keep the vision central when so much of what we see seems to, you know, go against it. And that's where we get to the second new thing. We get to, we, not only are we looking at a new home, but a new love, which is actually the best part. Uh, the best part is, you know, the new home is great, but what's even better is a new love. Uh, he will be with us. We'll have our true love back. Something I try to explain to students uh, at UConn as we talk about what the Bible is, is that it's first and foremost a love story. <laughs> you know, a God who uh, just is love within himself cannot help but create in his love, and he creates Adam and Eve, his people, and inexplicably they turn from him. His people that he created to love eternally turn on him, and the consequences are disastrous. 
the tentacles of sin just stretch out everywhere in the story, and yet immediately God resolves to pursue his lost people. And the Bible from page one till the end is about God pursuing his true love uh, for us to get our true love back. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. There's a lot of smoke and dragons and falling stars, and they're all ultimately about Christ's unrelenting love and pursuit of his bride. And, you know, we live in a world now where, you know, we've lost the one we were meant for, and we look for fulfillment everywhere. We're looking for that true love everywhere. Uh, Verse 6 of our passage talks about thirst. We come into the world as thirsty people. I looked and saw that the Powerball jackpot now is $500 million, which is amazing. You can purchase a lottery ticket and perhaps win $500 million. But think about what that means. That means that millions of thirsty people are willfully just handing over their money for a desire for what? Satisfaction. To have their thirsts quenched. These are thirsty people. Uh, What's your version of the Powerball jackpot? What are you willfully handing over for just some semblance of satisfaction? You know, we we allow the pursuit of, it doesn't have to be money, it can be status, or it can be just the perfect life, the perfect family, success, comfort. Uh, We allow the pursuit of that to make us miserable. Why? Because we're thirsty. We'll do anything to get some semblance of comfort in this life. I wonder what thirsts drive you this morning. Uh, It's kind of like going to the, you know, living in in our world in this way, it's kind of like going to the grocery store hungry. Anybody ever done that before? I was, you know, in my single days, I did my own grocery shopping, and I was often hungry in those days, and so I would go and uh, I would often come home with an eight-pack of Entenmann's crumb donuts and the next day, I'd be like, why did I buy eight donuts yesterday? And uh, it's because I went to the grocery store hungry. You know, they have, like, the impulse buys at the counter for the same reason, right? Because you just spend an hour walking around looking at food, and there's a sweet treat at the end for you, which you might as well just take. You, know, you can't go to the grocery store hungry. You make bad grocery decisions when you go to the grocery store hungry. And we make bad life decisions when we're thirsty. We try to quench our thirst with money or success or fame or status or the perfect whatever, and it makes us more thirsty in the end. And surely John has in mind the woman at the well, which he wrote about in John chapter 4, as he talks about thirst and drinking from the water of life. This woman who Jesus gently guided to see that she didn't even know she was thirsty. She's going through husband after husband after husband and becoming more and more of an outcast. Uh, She's got no one on her side, and she still can't see that she's thirsty. And so Jesus tries to show her that all that stuff, the pursuit of all that stuff to try to make it work here on earth is about thirst and that he's the only one that can satisfy. And so, you know, John's writing, you know, you can live for all those things or you can have this, you can have Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, you can have your tears wiped away by the one who made you. 
by the one who authored your story and knows better than anyone else the pain. The one who actually weeps with you. You can hold him. You can have your heart healed by him. You can have your thirst quenched by him. Uh, in verse 7, it talks about, you know, the one who conquers will have God as his father. You know, we can be children of God. You know, what's it like to be a child of God? I heard a story in the news which has stuck with me, has stuck with me for a long time about a boy who was born with a giant birthmark. It was covering the majority of his trunk, so it kind of covers most of his front and onto his back. This is giant, you know, the skin is darker on the birthmark, and uh, he was born with this big birthmark, and as he grew up, uh, got a little older, started going to the pool, and his father notices that he's getting a little weird about taking his shirt off at the pool. And so his father comes up with an idea. He says, would it help if I got the same mark tattooed on me? And the kid says, actually, yeah, it would. And so the father gets this giant birthmark tattoo covering the majority of his trunk just so his son won't feel weird at the pool. That's a father, right? That's what God is like always toward his people. Think about Jesus. Think about, he's saying, my children are stuck in a bad place, and if I need to come live with them, I will. If I need to take on their sin, I will. Their pain, their death, I'll do anything. I'll get totally dried up so that they don't have to be thirsty anymore. And the surprise of the gospel is, we keep turning away from that, and he still pursues us. He still wants you. He's died to secure you. He won't quit until the vision of this passage comes to pass. And we didn't read verse 8 this morning, but it does contain a warning for the church. There's a lot of people that are going to miss out on this. And that will be a disaster. Even some churchy people are going to miss out. And it will be because they've found a replacement love, which is not a love at all. But to have Jesus, you just need to be thirsty. He talks about, I don't want any payment from you. I don't want anything but you. I just want, from you, I just want you. Everything else that you cling to will demand that you pay. Jesus says, I don't want you to pay. I'm going to pay. And you just have to be not satisfied with anything that this world has to give and instead run home to Jesus. You have to be tired of paying for something that you can have for free. If you do run home to Jesus, you're going to live forever. You will actually live forever in a world of love. That will be your story. It's actually your story now as you cling to it in faith. I'm reading, uh, you know, one of the great joys of having children is rereading the Chronicles of Narnia, and I've done that with my kids. If you haven't read these books, you need to. And uh, I love the way the last book ends. You know, it's a story of these children that go to another world. They go to Narnia, and they encounter Aslan, who represents Jesus, and it's part of the way that God works to shape their story and to show them who he is. And at the end of the last book, the last battle, the very last passage says this. It says, 
And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. As we start this new year, looking around at the sadness, at the way that things, they're, they're just not the way that they're supposed to be, let's collectively this year remember we're going to live forever in the new heavens and new earth. All that bad stuff is going away. Uh, let's remember that life and love and beauty and truth win. Jesus wins. Everything bad is going away. And let's live in that story this year. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you know that we need help to live in the story. Uh, you know how quickly this vision can be clouded by uh, true sadness, true danger in this world. Uh, we pray that you'd guide us in the year ahead uh, to cling to it. Uh, we pray as we do suffer, as we do face trials, that they would only strengthen our hope and that we would cling uh, to this hope all the more, uh, that you guide us by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.